Good morning, everyone. This is the War Room to the Boardroom podcast. We're here with Marcus Harmon. We'll be talking about preparing a transition. I'm your host, as always, Mason Wilson. I'm a global business strategy and operations lead at Google. I'm a combat veteran, Duke MBA, and West Pointer. Today, Marcus and I will be discussing his transition into management consulting and business school. Marcus is a consulting manager at Simon Kutcher. He's also served as a ranger in the 3rd Battalion, 75th Ranger Regiment, and as an RSLIC, Reconnaissance Surveillance Leadership course at Fort Benning. He's a graduate of the University of Dayton in Ohio and Georgia Tech Schiller School of Business. So my friend, Marcus Harvard, please uh, let the people know. <laughs> hey, Michelle, how are you? I'm happy to be joining you today. Hi, everybody. As Michonne said, my name is Marcus Harmon, currently a manager at Simon Kutcher here in our Atlanta office. Prior to being in consulting, I, much like Michonne, was in the United States Army, served six years in special operations and reconnaissance. So I was uh, attached to, or excuse me, I was a member of Third Range Bravo Company, Third Range Battalion down in Fort Benning, did three years there, and then went over to the reconnaissance surveillance leadership course as an operations NCO and instructor. Then roughly in 2018, I had a lot of fun, maybe too much fun, and the body had <laughs> the body had a few injuries. So the army decided that I should find something better to do by way of a medical retirement, and I had no choice but to agree. So that's when business school started to become a bit of an option. So took the GMAT, uh, letters of recommendation, all that fun stuff. I ended up deciding to to head to Atlanta and go to Georgia Tech. Did an internship for E&J Gallo, so spent some time in the alcohol space and then transitioned to consulting. So it's been quite a windy road to get here, but I'm happy to be here and, and, and happy to see where this journey keeps keeps taking me. You live, uh, you live an exciting life. I'm sure the listeners are already like, man, how do I do that? <laughs> and so I've kind of given a little bit of background, but kind of tell us like, you know, where you're coming from. How did you end up in the military? So for me, I actually came from two elements, a military family and a football family. So my mother served 20 years in the Army, and I had three cousins deploy. I also had three cousins play in the NFL. So I was a college football player and then ended up in the, in the, in the Army. So kind of held on to the family legacy in some way, shape, or form. I would say that where that applied specifically to me was kind of growing up, I was always wanting to be in the military. I was that little kid where when we went to the store, I was asking for like more toy guns and squirt guns. And and I made a a silencer out of a snorkel, just like duct tape everywhere. It was, oh yeah, just full GI Joe, man. Like (laughs) low crawl around the house, the full full gamut. Um, (laughs) One could say I was probably a wee bit obsessed with it. And then much like everyone, once you get to high school, things change dramatically. So I ended up shifting to really wanting to focus on playing college sports. And that became my focus, my full focus, right? I want to go play college ball, play college ball. Not so much the NFL because, well, I'm only 6'2", so didn't really have those pro aspirations, but definitely wanted to be a collegiate athlete. And the military sort of took a back door to that, right? Except my sophomore year, I had actually suffered a knee injury. So I'm sitting around just rehabbing, bored out of my mind because at 20, 21 years old and you can't go anywhere, there's not a whole lot to do, right? You're not the most creative individual necessarily, or at least I wasn't. So apologies to those who were. And I was <laughs> I was reading this book called Inside Delta Force. Maybe you read it. I'm sure some of the listeners out there have. And in that moment, it was like, boom, I'm going to go do this. So I rehabbed, got back on the field. But then I actually ended up joining the delayed entry program. So for those who don't know, the U.S. Army will allow you to enlist some amount of time before you actually ship out. 
So I timed it up that I enlisted before my senior year began. And then almost to the day, a month after I graduated college, I shipped off to Fort Benning, Georgia to start the whole start the whole train. So did <laughs> I'm efficient. What can I say? I, I do what I want. So I, I get down there and it's you, you do basic training, you do airborne school, you go to RASP. So the Ranger Assessment and Selection Program, I went to level one because I was enlisted and below the rank of sergeant, staff sergeant and above will go to RASP level two. And man, they gave it to us. It's just, it's eight weeks of, of like, oh, you want to be here? Cool, we'll find out. So through the low crawling and the and the leg and the low crawling and the log drills and running for days and not sleeping, eight weeks later popped up and I had a tambourine and a, and a scroll. And I was like, cool, the work's over. The work was not over at all. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'll tell a quick story here. So we all graduate, right? And everyone's like, if you go to third bat, don't go to Bico. Nobody wants to go to Bico. And in my soul, I'm like, I don't know why I know this, but I'm going to Bico. And the NCO, he he hands out the, we all pick our battalions already. That was a couple of days earlier. He hands out the company assignments and I see Harmon, Marcus, company B. And I was like, I knew it. I just, I knew it. And <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so we head over to the company, right? And this, this tab spec for, he's like, she's being real nice. And he's like, we're going to take you on a tour. Soon as he opens the door back to what we call the zoo where all the lockers are, all hell breaks loose. We start bear crawling with duffel bags on our backs. We're doing put elevated push-ups and it's just, it's chaos, man. But that was that was the beginning of a, of a really, really a, what I'd say eventful and fun career with a lot of great dudes. Deployed a couple of times, met some good friends, some really good friends, lifelong friends, I'd say. And it's it, to this day, it's instilled me with some 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 pretty good values. So no, a little bit long winded answer there, but that was kind of my my train throughout the army a little bit. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a great great path. Special <laughs> yeah. forces ranger, you know, <laughs> like he did all the things. They're like he has all the cool guy experiences. Yeah. I'm sure like people in business school love to hear about him. I'm sure people in consulting are like, you did what? For no, yeah, there, there's a couple like I get a couple like bright eyed looks every time I tell. I don't tell a little bit. There are too much stories, but. Every once in a while, you know, you got to go, go, go relive some history and, and tell some things, but it, it's a good time. So can you tell us, you know, one, how did you think about the transition process? Understand that, hey, you know, the Army made a choice, which it often does. Yes. And says, hey, got to go do something. How do you start thinking about what do I do next? I mean, yeah. undergrad degree, you know, obviously a lot of potential to do whatever you choose. How did you land on business school and then into consulting? Yeah, I, admittedly for me, it was I, it was a relatively pragmatic and probably a little bit of ignorance is bliss if I if I wanted to be fully transparent here. So I have an undergrad degree in marketing with a minor in management. So an undergrad in business. In my mind, I'm like, okay, cool. Let's go get a master's in business. This makes sense. MBA, totally, totally logical transition, right? This was before I didn't know the GMAT was a thing. I didn't know about letters of recommendation. Like, what's M7, Harvard, Stanford, Wharton? Never heard of any of this, right? It was like, I'm going to go get an MBA. So that was probably the first layer. The second layer was I had to take probably some real stock in one, what I wanted to do down the road, and two, kind of what my skills, or at least what I thought my skill set could be. Because even though I had a degree in business, we'll say I hadn't really used any of those skills that were relevant in close to a decade at the time, graduated in 2012. 
getting out to so six, seven years. So looking at what I wanted, what I, the credentials I already had, what I wanted for my career and the skills that I thought I could bring to the table, business school seemed like the best fit for me. I'm not a super technical guy. So going in to get an engineering degree or get it like that wasn't going to happen. And also not an incredibly, as I mentioned, creative person. So like graphic design, all that wasn't going to be like, that didn't really interest me either. But I knew that I wanted to understand how the economy works. I wanted, wanted to understand how finance worked. I want to understand like how capital worked, like all these different elements of just like what business is. And I knew that I can, I can build relationships, right? I, I can present well. These are things that I can do that the business world will value. So that's kind of how I decided on business school from internally. Tactically, how I went about that was probably not the most elegant studying studying plan. I know there's a lot of people who went to service to school. I tried that. They didn't really get back to me in time. So I was like, all right, I'm just going to buy a whole bunch of like practice exams and I'm just going to get through this thing. Right. So it's just, I got a job with the Atlanta Hawks and their sales department. So I'm making a hundred calls a day, trying to sell basketball tickets while also spending a couple hours every night studying for the GMAT hunting down former NCOs and, and and colleagues in the army, trying to get letters of recommendation written and, and just like going on school visits. Don't know where I found the money to go on these school visits because I, I was not rolling in dough by any stretch of the imagination. But it was tactically, it was probably a little bit more blunt force than it should have been. So what I, my early piece of advice is to those out there who are looking to transition into business school, like leverage the resources you have. Being a veteran going to business school is not quite the same. And Mashad, you probably can back me up on this. It's not quite the same niche underserved community that it was even four or five years ago, right? Like admissions departments are very, are they're very used to dealing with veterans and, and have veteran resources and, and service to school. Or I think even if if you have you seen sit reps to steer codes like all that uh yeah, yeah that that didn't exist at the time we were in business school right so i would say leverage those things that you have now and and start to get away from the i guess we'll call it the sledgehammer technique that we veterans are known for as you go about this process so so let me just recap real quick is internally i had to make some decisions some assessments on my own tactically probably went about it a wee bit more pig-headed than i should but that I, I I wouldn't regret it because I don't necessarily know that I would have had the same learnings had I not gone about that way either. Makes sense. So kind of changing approach. Yeah. From just blood force running through a wall. To yeah, like, absolutely. Hey, let me like think about this. <laughs> 100%. I struggled with that on the GMAT as well, where I was like, you know what? Like, I mean, like, yeah, you got to get up sleep. I'll be like, yeah. I mean, I'm going to get this done one way or another. The question is yeah, how much. Like, I'm a smart guy. I've done well on standardized tests. It's another standardized test. I'll be fine, right? Like, that's <laughs> that's kind of the thought process. So you get that first score back, and you're like, this is not the same test at all. <laughs> you got to pay for those tiers of classes. It makes this, a monumental difference. It is yeah, yeah, this bad boy hits very different. And so if you were explaining, so you're, you said earlier that, hey, you're a consulting manager. Yeah. Like, what is consulting for veterans? What is yeah. that? Because I feel like everyone's a consultant these days. And so like, what do you actually do? I think, because it, it's it's a question that I think is, is relevant to not just veterans, but anyone who's considering consulting, right? I think if you were to strip all the, the fun filler words and everything away, I think what we do as consultants, we help our clients solve problems. And what those problems look like will differ based off the firm you go to. But that's essentially what you're doing is you're using at a 
point blank tactical level, usually Excel and usually PowerPoint, those are your tools you're working with. And it expands from there, right? But at a core level, what you're doing is you're helping your clients solve problems. That's what they're hiring you to do. At my firm, the, type, the set of problems that we focus on, we're a growth specialist, right? So the levers of pricing, sales, marketing, digital, those are the things that we tend to focus on, right? Not a lot of cost cutting, not an incredibly amount of M&A work, a lot of private equity work, but what you're doing at a core level is helping people solve problems. So if I have a CEO and we're sitting in our initial kickoff meeting and he's, I have these seven, eight things that I want to check out, those start checking out, right? And what makes consulting different is you kind of come into it with an answer already because you're driven by a hypothesis, right? So if you're like, hey, I think we're going to find this and you start doing your initial interviews and your fact finding and all that with that answer in your mind, with the goal being to disprove that answer, right? Because that, that already helps you eliminate or confirm something. And that's probably what makes consulting a little bit different from maybe some industry jobs. It's not necessarily the problem you're solving. It's how you go about doing it. Great, great explanation. <laughs> Love the good structure, right? We all structure. Well, nobody ever like really tells you when you're getting recruited, like what this means, right? Like they're just saying, well, your day-to-day can't really explain what it looks like or like, yes, you can. Like I'm going to wake up like, and these are the six things I'm working on. I need to get this analysis done, make these slides for this analysis. And we're going to go meet and talk about it. That's what you're going to do, right? There's no point in saying, well, I, I, your day-to-day can just be a myriad of things. No, it's probably going to be the same seven to eight problems that you're focused on because you're going to want to get down to the nth level detail to prove or disprove that, right? So for me, that, that might be a bit of an internal annoyance, we'll call it sometimes with maybe the NBA recruiting process and overinflating, we'll call it, uh, uh, terms. But <laughs> like, it's a cool job. Don't get me wrong. But there's times where we make it seem more than what it is. But it's a great role for vets. Go out there and do it. That's that's probably my second piece of advice is don't fall for the overinflation in the recruiting. What do you feel like is the biggest like misconception or misnomer about consulting? People are like, oh, like I got job at this. I'd say... Wow, there's probably a few of them. Admittedly, a lot that, and I, again, I'm sure you'll feel me on this, a lot of them that consultants will also lean into. I'd say probably the biggest misnomer is that you're you're telling someone how to run their business. That's not necessarily the case. What you're supposed to do is be an objective outside paid advisor to give a perspective an educated perspective and a perspective that has some evidence behind it as to what decisions they should or should not make. But you're not walking in on day one telling a 30-year operator in the global industrials like sector, hey, this is what you need to do different. And he's going to, because that CEO is going to look at you and be like, this is what I paid you for to walk in here on day one when you don't know my business, you don't know who I am, you don't know my competitors, you don't know my market share, you don't know my profitability. Like those, So that's probably the biggest misconception is you work with your clients. You don't work or talk at them. I agree. <laughs> they went to the armor, they're like, hey, we need you to figure out this whole like safety thing or like yeah. being the training room person. And I'm like, I mean, I don't know anything about that, but like- We'll figure I- it out, right? <laughs> if I go in and tell the training NCO, like, hey, this is how we're doing, he'd be like, okay, sir. Yeah. That's how you want to do it? Yeah, cool, cool, cool. Sick. Oh, I'd, be that NCO, I'd be that NCO, right? Like, I'm the one who's been like, I can be your biggest advocate or your biggest detractor, depending on how you come at me, right? Like, it's it's very interesting that, that that's very similar to what you see in the private sector, too, is like, you still need to build this relationship. 
And it's even more critical because admittedly in the military, like there is rank you can eventually fall back on. Like eventually someone will do what you tell them to do if you're in the right position from the rank scale. That's not going to happen out here. (laughs) There is no metric by which you can walk into someone else's boardroom and be like, hey, do this just because I said so. That is the easiest way to make that boardroom the most uncomfortable place you've ever been in your career. I assure you. Real quick. Real quick. <laughs> Can you also talk about the change in terms of how you communicate? So yeah. going from you know being in the Rainer Regiment where they they are about about it. Yeah, yeah. To business school and now into consulting. Yeah. Talk about how you change your communication, going from say a very direct style with uh, various you know punctuation marks, you know, and profanity in the conversation to correct. Yeah. A bit softer, you know, uh, different, different language. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. So there's, I'd say if you, and admittedly, this is something I'm still working on for two reasons. One, every veteran's going to have to work on this. Two, by nature, I'm a very direct communicator as it is. So I've always sort of struggled with, this is my thought on something. This is my opinion. You're going to hear it and you're going to hear it the way that I want you to hear it, right? Like I've kind of always done that even before the army. And that was exacerbated even more so in the military, especially being a place like the Ranger Regiment, where, as you said, very direct communication style every day. So I'd say all that to say that there's two elements, right? Is one, there's actually the way that you phrase or or the, the, the vocabulary, the lexicon that you use, like what you actually say is one element. But two, I think the bigger aspect of this is like internally, you need to start thinking about what is the what's the real message that you want to get across both to your audience and what does you want that message to say about you? And two, you have to start to reframe your mind of your priorities are not everyone else's priorities. The way that you go about even things like being on time, because that's one of the main ways I see veterans start to get annoyed is like people show up late to meetings. People are talking when like the presenter is speaking. Like those are things you just don't do in the military. Like it's just if you're five minutes early, you're late, that type of stuff. Right. You have to start truly reframing your mind to understand that it's okay when someone walks in and like the senior vice president is going to say to that manager or whatever. Oh, hey, Jim, you're a little late today. Ha ha ha. It's fine. Okay, everyone. Welcome. Let's get started. It's not going to be like captain is taking the the new lieutenant out back and it's going to be like it because officers are always like in front of us jim and bill right but i've heard those talks when they get in those back rooms it gets ugly same thing with enlisted right real quick real quick right so like you have to truly reframe your mind and that's going to help you start to change the message that you speak and you say and and you talk and you, you communicate with your peers because this, and this is important for two things, right? It's going to bring your stress level down because you understand that they don't care about those things. You can also stop caring about those things because they don't matter, right? And you also need to understand you have to start to build relationships and build advocates and get people to work with you and be on your side because there's going to be some point in the unknown future where you might need that person to get across an initiative that you want to get across in your presentation. Or as you're, if you own PL and you're trying to make an investment and there's other, and you're just trying to navigate the political environment, right? So what I would say is from a tactical standpoint, reframe your own priorities to match the environment that you're in and like stop cussing. Like it's, you can cuss every once in a while, but like the F word is no longer a place saver. Say uh or um, or better yet, just take a moment of silence. Like it's okay. Like you you can't do things like, like, like that. That's the type of stuff, right? Like. 
don't and 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 don't be afraid to to don't say anything. Like you you don't have to fill the void of silence with your words. If people are just sitting back reflecting, let them sit back and reflect. You don't have to rush an answer out of them. So those are a few of the things that I'd recommend is like how you start to transition some of that direct language into speaking a little bit more as someone who's going to be in the private sector, but also can be a leader in outside the Department of Defense. I think all, all amazing points. Yeah. I mean, very intentional communication, taking those pauses, receiving yeah. that switch from the arms to the breast. <laughs> that tactical pause. That that tactical pause will not leave you even though you leave the uniform. I, I can assure you. You'd be like, well, let me see how this developed before I jump in. And you're right. Like, uh, here's right. my. <laughs> this, this is where I can add value here. You also talk about as a consultant, right? In the military, we often solve very ambiguous problems. Can you talk about how problem solving ambiguity looks different from the military versus in the civilian world? I think from a, an example standpoint, how it looks. So in the military, it's going to be something like, and I'll just use an example of being on an objective, right? It's like, hey, we have this objective with six buildings. It's got four doors on each building has four doors on each side. We're going to go in here and we're going to go get this guy X, Y, Z, right? Like just a very standard tactical raid. And then what happens is you can't plan for what happens once you go in that door if you can't see it, right? So ambiguous in that sense tends to be a bit more, um, it's physical space, it's domineering, but it's also kind of like a, you can beat it with aggression almost. Like that tends to be what the what the military can teach you. And then there's also like, okay, well, land navigation I know I need to get from point A to point B. There's three different routes that I can take. I'm just going to start with one and then see if that works out for me. And then if I have to, I can flex to routes, uh, my secondary, my tertiary route. So that's where that ambiguity, ambiguousness in the military comes in. It's like, how am I going to get from point A to point B? I'm going to start with an assumption. If this assumption does not work out well, I can go to my different routes. It's the same way in the private sector, especially or specifically in consulting. I don't, I, whenever I start a project or a new engagement, I don't know what the answer is going to be at the end of this eight weeks, 10 weeks, whatever it is. But what I do know, it goes back to what I said earlier about having a hypothesis. It's like, okay, if this is a problem I've seen before, what did we run into then? Okay, they have a low profitability. So that means that they're probably could be a channel strategy, could be a pricing issue, could be a misallocation of marketing dollars, whatever it is, right? But I, I go in there already making some assumptions, right? If it's not a problem I've seen before, it's like, okay, let's just call what I call it's we call it being intellectually curious. Let's just start with some initial conversations, right? Like, let me speak to someone who's been here. That's what we have client interviews for. And let me start to through those conversations, get a little bit of data. I can start to parse together again a hypothesis or an assumption, but I'm starting the assumption I'm making instead of what the answer might be eight weeks from now. I'm like, okay. I know I had this conversation on Tuesday. I'm probably going to need to have these conversations by Friday. And then eventually you start to build out from there. So the common thread, if you've been listening to my long-winded speech here, is that you, you kind of have to just start moving forward despite not knowing where you're going to end up. And then the, it, all that really changes is the size of step you take on that path of unknown. So if it's a, if you know where you're going to end up already, or you have an idea because you have the experience, you might take a larger first step. If you have no idea, just take a baby step, right? And then you take another baby step. And then it's like, okay, I got this analysis done. Oh, that looks interesting. Let me now dive deeper on this analysis. Or, 
oh, this is a good conversation with Jim. Jim mentioned I should talk to Ryan. Okay, cool. Let's go talk to Ryan. And then Ryan's like, you should talk to Lauren. Okay, cool. Let's go talk to Lauren. And that's how you slowly build up your repository of information and, and you get to the, the answer eventually. Does that make sense? Makes perfect sense. Okay. Yeah. consulting fashion. I love it. <laughs> Check on learning at the end. No, it makes sense, right? So talking about the difference between like very focused ambiguity. Yeah. Is a wide aperture of ambiguity. Exactly. Exactly. There's you you have to there, I think one of the keys to to really dealing with ambiguity, whether it's in the military, whether it's in finance, whether it's in marketing or whatever program you decide to go into after you graduate, is you have to have a certain risk tolerance, right? Because if you want to, if you want to live in a world where everything is prescriptively told to you at every single time, then to be blunt with you, like you probably aren't going to be super comfortable moving into an MBA type role. And you definitely won't be super comfortable getting promoted into multiple roles after that. Because the idea have and this is how you really get paid big money. This is how you really like have a long and special career is you got to take risk. You have to be able to lead in ambiguous environments, whether that's a hostile takeover or a hostage situation. Like that's what gets people paid the big bucks, right? It's 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 that ambiguity. Like it's it's not going being dramatic to say like you have to learn to operate in ambiguity because you have no choice. That's what the environment is, right? Like look at COVID in 2019, everything was popping, right? Did we expect a year later that we'd be locked inside? No. Now imagine you're the head of, I don't know, Delta Airlines, <laughs> right? <laughs> and all of a sudden you're not making any money, not because your product is bad, but because literally nobody's allowed to fly. And you have to manage that situation and probably one of the most capex intensive industries on the planet, right? Like those, like those are bills that have to get paid. They're not going anywhere. You can't, you can't like, you can't mark down your entire fleet as seven thirty sevens because it does because no one's getting off. <laughs> so that's that's my way. Of, like you, you just you kind of you do it because you have to. And I'll admit that like everything else, even in the military, right? It gets harder, but you also get used to it. You know, so it's. It's like you you don't even think about you're doing it after a while because you've just been in that environment, right? Like when you took command of something, you're like, day one of command was, oh man, what is this? I about day 367, you're like, okay, cool. This is my job now. This is the life that I live. Same thing in the Ranger Regiment. Day one wearing nods is hard. Day when it's the ninth month and you've been wearing these nods for 19 hours today because it's <laughs> it's airfield seizure practice day. You're like, all right, well, let's put these things back on and go walk around the woods at night with body armor and, and machine guns on and stuff like that. So you you kind of just get used to it because you have to, but it does take some risk tolerance on your part. But taking risks and then kind of building that adaptability. Yeah, exactly. In the office, whether it's jumping out of airplanes or... Building a pricing model. So... Yes. <laughs> No, a lot of great insights, Marcus. I think the other question I have for you, great, there are many different types of consulting. Can you speak mm -hmm. about that? Right. Why did you choose, say, this growth side of consulting versus say operations or private equity or strategy? Like yeah. so many different disciplines. Talk about that navigation videos. I would say, well, one, admittedly, I kind of got lucky on this role. Like I how I found this job was told you I'm a pretty like driven individual, right? So I knew I wanted to go into consulting and I knew that there was a bunch of firms that were out there. So I literally just cold LinkedIn messaged this guy who already worked at Simon Kutcher, who was a veteran, right? Just cold LinkedIn message, asked for 20 minutes of his time. And he set me up with the partner who ended up hiring me. So 
Newsflash, guys, LinkedIn messaging does work if you do it right. So one is a bit serendipitous. Two, why I decided to go the strategy consulting route. For me, it was kind of a big, it was kind of important for me to, how can I say this? I, I wanted to get away from being known as the army guy or the military guy, right? Like I didn't want to get out, go to business school and then go right into going into, like I think Deloitte has a big GPS practice. It's great, but I might go back to it later. But initially I didn't want to do that, right? Like I wanted to have some some true, a, make a true transition into private sector work and strategy consulting for a growth focused firm was my was the best way I thought I could do that right like I really wanted to have on my resume get rubber stamp that this guy can do things that aren't related to the army and I also wanted to do that for my own knowledge and well-being like yeah I'm getting out but if I run back to doing a GS related job did I really transition or did I actually just push off my did I just push the can down the road right that was important to me to be able to say and get my own rubber stamp of no I can't operate in the private sector. And I can always go back to being the government guy. I can always go back to doing public sector work. I can always do whatever, right? But if I don't take a true stab at making a transition to a fully competitive, hard to get into occupation, I would have questions that I would not know the answer to. I mean, range control was not a list of options. It wasn't, you know, it really wasn't. No offense to the, the was it USA jobs or USA Gov jobs and all that? Like, there's just, I didn't want to do that. That wasn't, that wasn't what I wanted to do. Now, later, if I decide to stop working so hard, well, no, you know, could do it. We'll see, but not right now. I mean, good points. Really focusing on making the transition, transitioning your skill, and understanding what you're trying to do as opposed to trying to find that comfort zone of where you're Yeah, going. exactly. Exactly. And then also differentiate yourself from the rest of our. Precisely. Like, I, I feel like I'm always the type of person where I try to seek out my gaps and fill those, right? Like, I try to I try to constantly sit in discomfort, if that makes sense. Now, some of you out there are thinking, he sounds like a masochist. I am a little bit, admittedly. But when I just told you I played castle ball and I was in the Ranger Regiment, you probably should have picked up on that. So, <laughs> not surprising. So, for, for me, it's just a natural transition to go find out, oh, I don't really know what this is. It sounds like it's hard. Not a lot of people get to do it. I should go do that right there. That, that was very quickly about how my mindset went towards that. Yeah, typical Army uh, <laughs> Regiment. We be we be about it for your. For, we be about it. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, you know that sounds hard. That should be cool. That should be cool. That's fun. That's fun. It's very difficult to accomplish. Oh, sign me up. I'm definitely going to do this. Right? Like that's just some people are just wired that way. You know. And I heard you say I was, I was thinking David guy, and I was like, yeah, that sounds. That's <laughs> and so, in terms of like how you got to where you are, you talked about your transition. Can you tell us a little about like how you thought about transitioning? So. You went through the med board process and you started doing the whole like application process while you're doing this job. Did you use programs? Did you like, hey, I'm just going to dig down and read? You said you got a whole bunch of books. Is there anything else that you kind of leverage to navigate that process? I mean, honestly, man, like as far as like the actual transition and the applications and all that, like I truly do mean it when I said like I probably went about this the most painful and inefficient way possible, right? Like, when I knew I was getting med boarded and I had my date, like it literally would just be me sitting in front of a clanky army computer, like with a big old lip of Copenhagen in, like just doing math problems for the GMAT and sentence correction questions on magoosh.com. Like it, like it was just, it, it was just so ineffectual when I look back at it. Like I'm almost surprised that I got the admissions that I did because there was just, there's no, there's such a better way to go about it. So 
truly knows, like just buying books, buying these online subscription study materials. I will say what I also probably should have done though, and this is probably a lot of you other veterans will be this way, is don't force yourself to take the GMAT. The GRE is ex- much more widely accepted now than it was when I was applying too. And I probably found that out too late because I took the GMAT, the GRE, and, and that that was way more intuitive to me than the GMAT was, like way more intuitive. So if you, this is another recommendation I have, is before you get started studying on interstandardized tests, take the GMAT blind and take the GRE blind and see which one you do better on, go down that road because you'll get into whatever school you want to if you have a high enough score. As far as the letters of recommendation goes, don't go chase down your post commander or the three-star general or whoever it is. Like admissions departments are not going to care about that. Get a letter of recommendation from someone who actually knows you and can speak to the skill set that you have. Because what you're going to have to rely on when you apply to these programs is your ability essentially to be a good leader, work really hard, be flexible, be able to present, like be a good teammate, all these intangible things. Because I'm going to break your heart right now. There's going to be people who've known they wanted to get an MBA since they were in high school. And if you try to go up against them on the, <laughs> right, which I'm raising this hand, if you try to go up against them on the technical stuff or the scores or the work experience, probably not going to get there. So you just, you need to go and like swallow some humble pie on that now. And you'll go a lot further. Like, Wharton and Harvard, they love to let vets in if you can show enough of that polish that they need to, to feel comfortable admitting you part of the student body. But that only comes if you're like, okay, I'm not this, I'm not a war hero and everyone who didn't serve as a coward, blah, blah, blah. Like you, you have to get rid of that mindset. So focus on the tests that will get you the best score. Get recommendations from people who actually know you and humble yourself a little bit, like just a little bit. <laughs> just a little bit because it's going to keep happening once you actually get to school too yes there'll be a lot <laughs> i i agree wholeheartedly especially on those two points right generally the harvards the wardens the stanfords they're looking for those differentiators did you just do the standard military path or did you take the really really hard road like, yeah yeah, yeah. Were you yeah. a ranger? Were you a green beret? Were you a navy seal? Were you a navy seal? Were you a fighter pilot? Oh, what I will also say: go visit these programs, get on campus. That's how. Well, me and Michelle have a very good, close personal friend, John Bieber. He graduated with him. I know him because I went to. That's how me and Michelle got connected. Actually, was go actually visit the programs, get on campus, meet the students for two reasons. One, you'll get to see if the value prop they talk about on their websites is true. And two, you'll get to like see if this is a place that you really want to be or that you connect with the student body or if the programs and the majors and the concentrations and the companies they recruit for, even the facilities, if that's a place you want to be and can see yourself living for, well, I'm assuming full-time programs, so two years, right? Like it's very important to get out there and, and get that, like get that experience because what you don't want to do is get into a good school, go out there, hate everyone. And then no matter how high the ranking, you didn't use it because you hated being there the entire time. Mm-hmm. That's an expensive mistake to make. Even if you get the yellow ribbon and the GI Bill, that's an expensive mistake to make by the waste of time alone. That's a nugget right there. That's a <laughs> I can't tell you how, right? Like business schools are amazing at marketing. They do really, really well at it. You'd be like, I could go anywhere and be fine. I'd be like, you can do that, but you might be miserable because it's be not be your tribe. Right. Could be miserable. If you're a big city person, don't go to Dartmouth and be hanging out in Hanover, New Hampshire for two years when it's seven degrees outside. You're not going to have fun. I promise you. Just That's just one example. But like, you're not going to have fun there. 
You need to know, you need to understand that. If you're not a big big person, big city person, I don't need to go to Columbia. <laughs> you're not going to have fun there. This, those things matter. Yes. A, lot of, a lot of those things matter. They matter a lot. Yeah. I would say the other piece too is like also like if you look at some of these programs, at least for the business school aspect, visiting on weekends that are not simply just for veterans or minorities or whatever mm-hmm. your location is. So you can see, is it just the vets that are going to help me or do all the students? Is everybody going to help me? Exactly. Because veterans, so no matter how big of a veteran program it is, veterans are a very small percentage of the overall student population. And more importantly, I love veterans, but we're not always going to get the jobs that you're going to need or want later as you graduate too. So the CEO, the future CEO of what's called Blackstone or whatnot, may or may not be a vet. Mathematically says he or she will not be a vet. So you need to get to know everyone and make sure that you vibe with every single person. You all, Another reason that's important is you don't want to, just like I didn't want to get out of the military and go right into a, a military tangential job. Don't go to business school and only hang out with only the veterans. Like, don't just re-enter an echo chamber because that serves you no no purpose. You you did all this time, effort, and energy to just not learn anything new from anyone else. Like, don't do that. Hang out with the vets, yes. It's a great community to be a part of. But make a legitimate effort to build true relationships and friendships with people who have a different background than you do. Yeah, 100%. (laughs) It's also like if you don't engage those in the first part of your experience, mm-hmm. eventually people find their comfort zones. Exactly. Either like, you know, it could be genders, it could be socioeconomic status as undergrads. Well, but a whole bunch of things, right? Like the tribes, there's you know? born students, there's foreign students there. Eventually everyone finds their clicks naturally anyway. So early on, you want to be like meeting as many people as possible. You can always go back to the vet people, right? Like I'm, I've been accused of being as big a bro vet as anybody else, right? I can always go back and kick it, Griggs Budweiser, and go to the vets club bench. Like you can always do that stuff, but that's not the point of going to a top program in a world class city or world class town or whatever to get an elite job that a lot of people don't have access to, right? Like continue to push yourself out of your comfort zone. Like that's how you get the most out of this. Yeah, because you'll see the difference once you get into your first job. Exactly. <laughs> Precisely. Because by the time you figure it out on the job, it's too late and you wasted those two years. Mark my words. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of the next thing I have for you. So where do you think you're trying to go from here? And that could be in terms of your career, in terms of like the goals and aspirations, or, you know, or where's, where's Marcus? Where do you see yourself going next? Bill, you know this about me already. I assume by this point, the listeners know this about me already. I'm not a shy person. So I'm not going to start being shy now. My goal is to make partner. And then if I leave consulting, my goal is to get to the C-suite. That's just, I'm the type of person who I believe I can, therefore I should. And that's a good enough reason for me. Like I have the drive, I have the the ability and I have the motivation. Well, I guess I just repeated myself. But for me, I want to make partner because anything that I want to do, I want to get to the top of my field in. So that's, that's part one, right? And then the second reason I want to make partner is that like, I'm, I'm just I'm kind of like, I'm really passionate about like helping clients solve problems. Now those problems could change. Like maybe I'll like, go to a different firm, stay at the same firm, who knows, like I said, could go take an industry job, but like, I would only do that if I was as passionate about that product or service. But for me, knowing the natural leader that I am and the expectations I hold for myself, I expect to be a leader in the organization that I'm a part of too. Whether that looks like partner or C-suite level, that depends, but that's that's where Marcus is going in, in the future. And that's where I expect to be. I love it. You know, I need, I need partner friends. <laughs> and law firms, consulting firms, 
take it off. All of them. Just, just all of them. All of them. That being said, you also took a very different path than kind of pretty much everyone else I've had on the podcast. Like you're one of the first NCOs I've had on here. Because can you talk about how that transition looks different when you know you have a college degree? Yeah. Your NCO, how does that transition look different? And how do you position yourself different compared to you know people that are getting out of the cabinet like myself? Yeah. I think how I should start this because I can almost hear it is some listeners saying, wait, he has a college degree and he still decided to enlist. So let me go ahead and answer the first question then. Like, how did I decide to enlist instead of commission? So going back to that book that I read inside Delta Force, I looked at it as if I were to reflect on the 20, 30 year career that I wanted to have in special operations, I would have rather retired been like the dusty master sergeant or sergeant major who had been you know, just like 15 deployments and in the darkest corners of the world, like that's what I wanted to do, right? Like I didn't want to do, and again, this is an assumption that I would have made a selection to a different unit, which like, that's a whole, that's a whole nother like pursuit, right? But like, I didn't want to look back and say that I'd only been a PL in the range regiment or a squadron leader in some other units or things like that. Cause it's sort of a rotational basis, right? The way that I equate it to in the private sector is like, Being on the enlisted side is you get that technical leadership, right? Like it's about doing the job and knowing every aspect and actually doing the job and executing on it, right? An officer is more organizational leadership, right? It's looking big picture. It's looking out and up. It's as opposed to looking down and in as an NCO. And that's what appealed to me, right? So that's why that's why I went into the military with and as an enlisted soldier instead of as a commissioned officer. That's what I wanted out of my experience, how I positioned myself as I was recruiting is, well, it's really kind of the same way because I always plug it in and like, yeah, I was actually enlisted on an officer. And that kind of opens the door for me to start to one, control the narrative of my interviews and two, start to highlight the differences, right? It's what I usually pitch it as is like, because I was enlisted, that means I already have a skill set of knowing how to actually execute on something and execute on something high level and get it done right and get it done quickly which what's very important in consulting, executing on something on a high level, getting it done right and getting it done quickly, right? Like that's that was my pitch to it. And the third element is it kind of helps that truly no one really knows what the difference is. If you like when you're sitting in front of a hiring manager or anyone else, and I know some people like that probably rubs some bets a long way, but Michelle, I know you know I'm right on this. Like once you get far enough removed, nobody really knows the difference. All they kind of know is I was in the army and I was a ranger. They don't really know if I was a, platoon leader, company commander, or a platoon sergeant, or a team leader. So you can kind of position it any way that you want to. So that was my thought process is I got there because of what I wanted. I positioned it the same way of what the Army gave me. And because no one really knows the difference too much, it's not that hard to pitch myself that much differently. The people who were most astonished were actually other veterans who were all officers who were like, oh, you're enlisted and you're like speaking to me as an adult because we'll get into stereotypes and all that later. But like... But like that's the, that's the audience that's the most shocked that I was enlisted and not an officer. It's never been a recruiting manager or a hiring manager or, or even the even my partner who hired me. He's in the Naval Academy. That's a that's a gym right there. If you don't if you don't get anything else, that's the gym. Uh, I remember one of my mentors told me he's like, look, once you check the leadership box in the military, like it's checked. Like it's done. Like people impose all these like differentiators of like, oh, you got to stay like you got to be commander, like. Yeah, this and like you know, always like take it with a grain of salt and ask who's like telling you bad advice because like most of them probably have you know oak leaf clusters and evils and stars on their chest and so like 
they really know. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like, and, and I'll even admit, like, because people, because Hollywood exists, right? So they know about Army Rangers and Navy SEALs and fighter pods. So, like, that's those, because I did one of those specific things, that highlights a little bit more interest. But at the same rate, man, there's supply officers who are working at Blackstone right now in private equity, right? So, like, it, it's not like it really doesn't matter, right? And there's Navy SEALs who are just grunging about being a Navy SEAL who are doing a USA Gov job. So, I mean, like, it, 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 if you pitch it the right way, you can go wherever you want. Like there's there's no reason to think because you didn't do those jobs, you can't go do some cool things, right? Like the MBA JD graduate at Kellogg who's in venture capital and was <laughs> and was like <laughs> and was like a supply officer. I assure you, he doesn't care about some special operations, not when he looks at his paycheck every Friday or every other Friday, right? He's not worried about it. <laughs> so it, it it works either way. I love it, right? Because like often people get caught in this like yeah. Oh, I got to do the hard things. Like, yes, do the hard things. Right. I mean, has been 20 years at war, more or less. So, you know, admissions departments, do you know the difference between like, you was like the training room officer or you were like, yeah. oh, you were a green gray. Yeah, yeah, 100%. But also the importance of like the narrative and how you control it and spin it. Yeah. You tell different stories depending on what you're trying to do and exactly. how you show that this is my brand and who I am. Exactly. And my skill set that here's what I can offer you in this position that I'm applying for or this program that I'm applying for. That's more important than anything else. Oh, amazing points. Love it. And so kind of for the last piece, we just want to talk about like lessons learned. So in the process of doing a transition, talked about like a lot of blunt force, like yeah. kind of setting through it. What would you do differently? What would you recommend to that five, that six, that into that's trying to transition and trying to figure it out? How would you do it better? I would say the biggest thing is I, I, I would probably, I'd recommend be, be intentional with every action that you take. And here's what I mean by that. Transitioning is scary and it's hard. And it's easy for me to look back on that process now sitting where I am to say this, but at the time I didn't know I'd be here, right? Like I didn't know that I would actually have graduated with an MBA. I didn't know that I actually have a job in consulting. Like I didn't know I'd be ready to marry the woman of, of the, the love of my life here in a month and a half, right? I didn't know these things were happening at the time, right? But because of that fact, I applied to every school on the ranking and I took every visit that I could. And I, I almost like, I don't want to say spread myself too thin because I, I have the capacity to go do those things, but it did make my process less efficient than it should be. So I'd say if you are sitting in that transition period now, you don't know necessarily what it's going to look like. I'm here to tell you that's okay right? Like sit in that discomfort, understand, trust who you are. Like you got yourself to this point, you'll get yourself past this point. Just be intentional with every application you submit, every conversation you have about letters of recommendation. And that could be whether it's for MBA, whether it's for law school, whether it's just for, just for if you're applying for a job and they ask for references, right? Like be intentional with these conversations and these decisions, because it's more important to get it right than to get to the end fast because you don't want to end up on a road that was the easier, the quicker, the better, or the the easier and more in your face opportunity when the better opportunity was just right around the corner. And if you would have taken that tactical pause, stopped, looked, listened, see what I did there? Like you'll end up in a better spot and it won't feel like it right now, but you'll feel better. You'll trust yourself in the end. You'll feel better about it. So what questions did you ask yourself it could be about your last assignment. It could be about terminal benefits, relocation. What questions should I ask myself as I'm like navigating this transition? 
I think what you should ask yourself is you have to prioritize work-life balance is always the big thing, right? Like that's, that's the key topic. You have to prioritize like what matters to you most. Are you an achievement-based person? I am. Like what I do for my profession, that matters to me because I have to spend so much of my time doing it anyway. I want to do it right. Some people are like, no, I need to live in a certain place because the pace of life is what's going to be more important to me. Or I need to get, well, that, that, my, I could be going back home. My culture is more important to me. My family is more, like those are the things you have to decide first and flat out, right? Because that's also going to dictate a lot of the, from a professional standpoint, the, the road that you go down. If you really, really know that all you want to do is, is have Every, the most chill, just accepting experience possible because the military just wasn't your thing. You probably don't need to go into investment banking or or strategy consulting or or big law because that's just trading your job for your job again. And you need to understand that, right? And but if you know that you really want to get after it and like go fast and really learn quickly, well, maybe some leadership development rotation programs aren't your speed either, right? Like maybe brand management's not your speed, or maybe getting your uh, your CDL is not what you want to do. So you need to decide what's most important to you, right? Like that's going to be first full stop. And then I start asking yourself about those questions. It's like, okay, am I transitioning from a position of medically? Okay, then like go to your doctor's appointments. And when you're at your doctor's appointments, like don't try to be the tough guy. I almost lost out on my rating because I didn't want to tell the doctor how much pain I'm in, right? Like how stupid is that? You know? Like, like it, it sounds so simple to say, but like, what questions should you ask yourself? You should ask yourself the very simple ones that you know you're ignoring. And every person knows exactly what I mean when I say that because those questions are unique to them, but they know exactly what it's like. I haven't touched this issue in a while because it makes me uncomfortable. So. <laughs> there it is. Those, those are good ones. Those are good ones. <laughs> I guess, can you also talk about like, you know, the, the tendency, like we tend to, you know, not kind of minimize issues, whether they're... Yeah struggles at work or yeah. transition process can you just give like a high level overview like hey like when i was going through this the uncertainty that i felt or like these are the things that i've gotten better at communicating about myself that are important for my civilian life and well-being one let's just acknowledge the fact that's just sort of beat into us right when you join the military whether it's army navy marines air force coast guard whatever it is that's just sort of beat into you right like you do not whine about things that are not going well in your life, whatever it may be. That's just like, it's a cultural like thing, which it has its moments and its place, but most of the time, that's not what we should be doing. So let's preface it with that, right? What I will say is that my own issues with that is that I'm, I've kind of not only internalized that, I've always been that way. So if there's something wrong with me, you're probably not going to know about it, right? Like I'm going to work on that myself. The problem with that is twofold reasons, right? Number one, I think the mental health issues that come with that, we know that, right? Like we're all focused on that. That makes a big, big, big difference. The second part, I think this is why you're asking about it is like, this will keep you from advocating for yourself in your civilian role, which will hold you back from getting the promotions and the raises that you deserve. Because you think if you say, hey, I did more than my fair share of work on this project is you whining or being selfish when in actuality, that's how you move forward. So what I will say to you is this, and I, you should have shaken your head. So I think I did hit the point that you wanted to hit was like, you need to learn to advocate for yourself, not only because it's good for you, but because it's good for your career. You need to put on your evaluation. Yes, I did X, Y, Z. That was up and above my job description. Yes, I made sure I did 
put did this extra analysis or I drove these extra miles, whatever your job may be, you need to make sure that those who are your superiors know that so that they can go and advocate for you when it's review time. So that's my advice on that. It's good for you to, to ask for help. It's also good for you to ask for help and to highlight when you've done great things because that's going to help you continue to move forward professionally. Yes, 100%. The self-advocacy piece, whether it's negotiating your initial salary and offers, because it's not DFAS pay scale, it's whatever you negotiate. And if you're like heads down, you will get hosed. 100%. If you're like, hey, well, if, if you get a job offer and they're saying, hey, we'll pay you this, and it's just way more than you make with the military, and you're like, cool, I'll take it, that hiring manager is like, cool, got it. Because I guarantee you they had a budget that was that's willing to go 5, 10, 15, 20% higher for the right candidate. So, oh, actually, let's add another thing to the list. Always counter offer, just because, just to find out. Just, <laughs> just yeah, like, hey, we'll pay you this. Cool, I want this, just to see what happens. So no reason. Do it respectfully. There's a right way to go about it, but always counter offer. I say also do your research, right? So like yeah. look websites like Glassdoor and you need to see mm-hmm. what should be paying. And then two, looking at that deep ass calculator, see like this is how much you think you make in the military, but with the tax advantages, you really yeah. yes. Exactly. Yes, exactly. The those taxes are real too, by the way. So real big. Real, real big. Real hits real different. Like first paycheck, I was like, did I get robbed? <laughs> what, what happened? See, see, that's cute. You said first paycheck. I still feel that way when I look at my paycheck. (laughs) Well, it was was an internship for the first paycheck. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I would have been a Texas State resident to a California resident, but we can say that. pain. Only pain, my man. You said that for a whole nother time. Yeah. Uh, I think the last piece, right, in talking about benefits, I mean, you brought up that's also a really good point. Mm -hmm. And it made me think of this. So, you know, when you're talking about your issues, you're actually doing it for your 20 or 30 year old self. You're doing it for your 50 or 60 year old self. Right. I'm doing this for down the road. I'm still in decent shape now because I still go work out and whatnot. But like I'm in incrementally more pain every day as I get older. And it's nice to at least be, I don't want to say it's not necessarily fairly compensated, but somewhat compensated for it. Right. Like there is some monetary value that is behind why I put my body through. Right. Like I earned that. You know what I'm saying? And then there's the other aspect of it is like that check alone kind of covers my rent, which means it goes towards other things like investments, which help me like start to generate like actual wealth down the road too. You know what I'm saying? So if I can't work this hard or go this fast, like I am now allowed to be able to put some money away and it appreciates in value and and, and I get, uh, and I can return on interest and all these fun things because I advocated for myself for this extra thousand bucks a month which helps cover my rent. So now that part of my paycheck, which is also getting taxed, can now go into my 401k, my brokerage account, all these other things, right? So it's a, it really is a domino effect. You've given us a lot of great notes, Marcus. You know, is there any other like lasting advice to you give our listeners? Or you know, if they want to like reach out to you and learn more about you and your story and how to be a good consultant, you know, where can they find you? Yeah, I mean, like last piece of advice, just just stay the course. Like don't lose confidence in yourself. It's not gonna be easy every day, but like. It, it's always worth it, and if that makes sense. So just just stay the course. Um, if you want to reach out to me, Marcus Harmon is my name. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. Always happy to chat. So just hit me up. I'm always happy to help veterans out with whatever, whether it's resume reviews or just go grab coffee or grab a beer or whiskey. I like whiskey. So <laughs> feel free to reach out, guys.
Are there any uh, other initiatives that you're working on, you know, any side projects that you'd like to share? No, I got to say, I'm not as multifaceted of an individual as you are, man. I'm just kind of, I'm kind of grinding away at the, at the primary, you know, at the primary occupation right now. But I've got my eye on maybe doing some external investments. Me and my buddies are talking about maybe starting up some things. But, but right now, just 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 cranking out slides analysis and, and jet setting a little bit, you know. <laughs> nothing wrong with that. Those are solid things. Those are solid things. Well, Marcus, as always, we appreciate the conversation. You know, amazing points, great nuggets. You know, wish you the best of luck and, you know, let us know when that part of promotion drops. Awesome. Awesome, bro. Thank you for having me, man. I'm happy to come back anytime. <laughs>